Hi there! Welcome to another episode of the Handful of Leaves podcast, where we bring you practical Buddhist wisdom for a happier life. Today we have the CEO of Ethan House, Eng Yixian, and my co-host. We're going to ask a lot of questions regarding how mindfulness can influence leadership behavior. And if you haven't heard of Ethan House, it is an international institution with 120 schools worldwide. Headquartered in Singapore, and specifically, their aim is to provide high-quality international education for K-12 students. As of today, there are about twenty thousand children globally. It's a very, very big portfolio that you're handling, and we are curious <laughs> about how you manage that and how mindfulness kick in. So perhaps you can share a little bit more about how long you've been practicing mindfulness and what's your relationship with it, and how does it affect your leadership style. Thanks, Kai Sing,、uh, and hi, Cheryl. So、uh, I discovered meditation about eight or nine years ago, right when I stepped into the portfolio of Eaton House. Prior to this, I was、uh, investment banking analyst and a hedge fund analyst. I stumbled into a meditation center in Boston. My roommates asked me to go. I meditated for the first time there, and I remember asking. The most bizarre questions to the facilitator. I think I asked him when I meditate, why go to enlightenment? Or like, why do people do this? I was probably 27 or 26 years old then, and I probably walked out even with more questions that I didn't have answers. When I came back to Singapore about eight years or nine years ago, I stumbled upon meditation because a friend sent me a YouTube link. It was a mantra-based meditation, and I did it, and I found myself in samadhi. So I'm blessed to be able to fall into very deep states naturally. I would confess to say that when I first started without proper instruction, I would fall into deeper states easier than I did with proper instructions. So I experienced a world where there was a void. Honestly, it was an altered state. First time I meditated and I experienced this feeling, I kind of realized like, oh, that's why everyone's talking about this whole mindfulness thing. Then when I discovered that that was the exception and not The norm, and I myself began to discover what so-called normal meditation is. I realized that, oh, gee, how do I get more of what I used to have? This deeper state. So I ended up discovering a craving and suffering <laughs> for better meditation through meditation,、um, and it led me through a multi-year adventure、um, with learning more about meditation and I would say religion. So I started. I started on a whim, and I discovered、um, that. It also helped me deal with the day-to-day struggles of、uh, leading an organization.、Uh, being a CEO is quite a tough job. In fact, a good friend of mine, a mutual friend of ours, actually, when he discovered what I did for a living, he kind of looked at me and said, "Wow, you have a really poopy job." And I remember I had a good laugh at that. And he said, "You know, a CEO's job is to handle、uh, the poop that no one else wants to deal with in a healthy, so-called healthy organization."、Uh, Where people make decisions slow you, only the real poop comes to the top. But you get good news or an easy decision that means that people didn't bother to make the right decision、uh, below you. And I would say that as a young man、uh, taking an education group with so many students, and being very awkward because I wasn't involved myself. And these schools are hundreds, schools are preschools. It, I think I definitely felt all kinds of feelings from imposter syndrome. To I don't really know what I'm doing here, and I would definitely say that、uh, mindfulness and having a meditation practice really helped me get to grips with my reality 
and uh, how to actually look at it very impartially as an observer and really help me grow. Yeah, I think it's a really big shoe for you to feel, right? Because your mother is quite a legend. I've read her profile, mad respect, <laughs> how a single woman can build up this entire, I would say almost an empire of sorts and benefiting so many kids. So I am quite curious, was there a particular instance where you felt like, wow, this is the most challenging period of my career in Eaton House and how has your mindfulness practice kicked in to help you with that? So, well, my mother is quite literally the woman of the year. <laughs> as in 2022. <laughs> the joke was that when she was given the award, my father made a quip that because there's a young woman of the year and uh, then there's the woman of the year. So my mother said, well, there's a young woman of the year. You must be the old woman of the year. And my mother, to her credit, actually said, you know, I'm 70 years old. I waited 70 years old for, for this honor. So if I'm the old woman of the year, so be it. Which I thought was really cool. So yes, my mom was a pretty cool lady. And I, for better or for worse, very soon after I joined the organization, I was pretty much left with our Singapore schools and uh, we weren't doing very well because we had overexpanded. So I walked into a situation where I thought that I could take several years to learn the ropes, to understand what we do. I previously worked in an investment bank and a hedge fund, which I think one is an institution and the other is a bunch of people <laughs> trying to make sense of the world on their laptops. And I, I think I really expected what you would call a training period, I guess, uh, onboarding. And I, I didn't really get that. <laughs> and I was thrown to the fire. And in a way, that was very difficult for me because I had never fired anyone before. I had never made tough decisions that impact not just one person's life, but many people's lives. Uh, the responsibilities I had after the army and before coming into Eaton House uh, really revolved around the spreadsheets, numbers, and concepts, and not real people. So it was very daunting to me. And I would say that what helped me is, you know, I mean, now that I have children, I understand the concept of a red zone. So when you're in that red zone, your anger really flares up and you, you say things that you wish you never said. And I think, I mean, I personally can say that probably the worst things I've said in my life have been in that zone. But luckily, I don't go to that place very often. I've probably only gone to that place uh, less than a handful of times in my role. And I would say that I, I'd have to thank mindfulness and my meditation practice for this. The vast majority of our team members are women. So big emotions are a commonplace in schools and also a commonplace with our team. And as a male leader, I think, yes, I to figure that out very quickly and and now i've got to a point where it's the norm recently i hosted a session where people were trying to understand what's it like to lead an education organization and they kept saying what's it like to work with so many women and i say i don't know i haven't worked in the world <laughs> i like this for a long time and just now you mentioned when you first started out meditation it's like oh you know is it for enlightenment what it is so if now you were to look back at that time again, how would you have answered your own question? Well, I think like most experiences in life, it's really what you make out of it. And like anything else, I would say that experientially, meditation has so much to offer. I like the analogy where oftentimes our minds are muddy water that's in a glass and it's shaken. And over time, the mud and the dirt kind of settles down and then you begin to actually see a clear mind. I think that's a pretty accurate description. I will say that um, 
that's just the beginning. And mm-hmm. you can experience infinite space. I have heard of people who have experienced the infinite consciousness. I have not. But I would say that it's it's a very fascinating experience. I've personally felt intense emotions of love towards um, the entire world and uh, towards all living beings. It, it was very brief and very fleeting. And I got into an argument with my sister right after that and it went, poof, it disappeared. <laughs> but uh, I have felt all these sensations with great intensity. Well, I think on some layer, we're all searching for the answers to the mysteries of life. And I feel like meditation kind of helps peek just a little bit about what's behind that cover. So it's something that I wish I had more time to do. I, I now have uh, three young children under the age of three. Uh, it is not advisable for your health or for your career to do this. <laughs> I sad to say, you know, on a good day, I only do about 15 minutes in the morning. Once in a while, I can squeeze in a longer block of half an hour here and there. But yes, yes, it's a lifelong adventure for me. And I do hope that with my dying breath, I do hope to be in a state of meditation when I go. I hope so for you too. Well, unfortunately, I also have a penchant for extreme sports. So a year ago, I found myself in a cave. I'm a cave diver and I was exiting the cave. And long story short, I felt an intense sensation of pain. And I, it grew to a point that was so extreme that I actually thought that I, I might die of some kind of gas poisoning because it picked up so quickly. And I, I can confess to you that I was not anywhere near a meditative state. And what I felt was eventually a poof and then something in my ear bled, coughed out a bit of blood underwater and then realized, like, oh, I'm okay. No, no lasting damage. I think just a blood vessel somewhere wasn't working right. But uh, yes, I, I, thanks to my extreme sports, I have come close and uh, this wasn't even that close. And I think I know how hard it is to say, actually, to, to really endeavor to, uh, to be in a clear, a clear mind when you go. Yeah, I think that's why a consistent practice is so important because at that moment where you revert back to autopilot, all the habitual tendencies of fear, anxiety can just overwhelm your mind. And if that is the last mind state that you have, it could be quite unfortunate because that could also lead to your next rebirth. Well, I just think it's a very bad way to go. I mean, when I was traveling around the world, I had the misfortune to actually be a first responder to a fatal car accident. There was a man that I was giving first aid that passed away right in front of me. And I think when, when you see life disappear like this, I, I think it's, it's something which, you know, if it's so hard to meditate on a good day or a bad day, and most of us don't meditate when we're sick. You can only imagine what it feels like on uh, probably the, the last moment in our life. So uh, it's a lifelong practice and maybe maybe only a fraction of us have seen it. So maybe we can try again the next round. The journey continues. <laughs> but also you mentioned sometimes you try to cut out 15 minutes or 30 minutes in your day. And I, I guess it's extremely difficult with three kids under the age of three and 20,000 other children under your care. How are you intentional with it? Do you set it as a routine? Yeah, so for me, um, I wake up and it's probably one of the first things I do. I have my cushion in my study next to my bed and I go to my cushion. And it's quite funny when your children barge open the door and then they kind of like, like kind of swan dive into your lap. <laughs> But I feel like it's important to make it a routine. As much as you love something like this, it's just so difficult to keep things up if you don't make it a process that you follow every day. 
And I'm lucky that I fell into it this way. I think another practice that I try to do, I, I did it before I had children, uh, is to go to an annual meditation retreat. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the Tibetans and the Theravadans do this in a very different way. So you compare a Vipassana-style retreat where there's noble silence and then compare it to a Tibetan-style retreat where everyone's talking all the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I guess you can just choose your own fancy, whatever works for you. But I do feel like a good friend of mine gave me this advice very early on. He said, put this on your calendar one year in advance. And so you have no way of getting out of it. And so your calendar's blocked. And when the time comes, you just go. And I give this advice to people very often. And I personally try to do it. But when you have young children, you have to seek clearance from uh, multiple parties <laughs> in order to go. So uh, yes, I just returned from one. Um, and it's probably my second one since I've become a father. And I'm very thankful to my wife for actually giving me the time to do it. Sadhu, how do you convince the multiple stakeholders to let you go on the retreat? Well, the story of how I went to my very first one was it was a burnout. So I had set up two schools back to back in Singapore. The last school I did without power and water in 55 days, and it's a large school. It's more as more than a thousand students oh. large, and it really took a lot out of me. And after it was done. I, I couldn't feel joy. So I had parents coming up to me, thanking me for setting up the school. And it, it is probably one of the schools I've set up that I know have really made a big impact on society. And to me, I, I just couldn't take in any more joy. I was just out. So this good friend of mine, he had sent me this link uh, to this retreat in the US and said, hey, by the way, there's this guy doing this retreat next week. Uh, you can consider it. And I booked it, flew off, did it, came back. And then when I met up with this friend after that, I said, hey, remember that thing? Yeah, I actually went for it. Really? <laughs> I didn't expect you to. So I fell into this cadence that way. With regards to stakeholders, I think the first time you do it, the people around you uh, have this whole myriad of, of emotions, right? I think some of them think that like, you know, boss is weird. Some of them think boss is running away. <laughs> uh, I'm sure a lot of them think like, thank God, boss is not my face. Um, when I came back from my first one, I, so I got to a place where I could hear my heartbeat at every moment, which was fascinating. I haven't been able to hear that ever since. And my team members, I seemed very out of it in a way. In reality, I discovered what it feels like to experience everyday mindfulness. So they actually said that I, felt, I, I felt a bit lost and different because I came back to what I was used to. And as time goes by, you revert back to your usual self. It, it is the way of the world. The second one I went to was on a concentration meditation. One of the insights I had from it was the realization, is my life's purpose to run Eaton House, to run this international education group. And that's why I'm in this world. So that realization came to me and like all good realizations, it's, it's a very tiny part cognitive and it's a much larger proportion knowing with your whole being. And so when I came back, actually I had a lot of thoughts and ideas and the team came back very surprised because, you know, the first time boss comes back very zonked out and the second time boss comes back fired up. And actually a few of them came up to me and said, uh, what exactly were you doing over there? <laughs> <laughs> They've come to realize that it's an important part of me. And the first time I went, everyone felt I needed a vacation. The second time, 
I went, they realized that it was almost like it was going to be good for the business. I think that's the way how my boss, my mother looked at it. Maybe I think for my team members, they realized that it was my way to get greater clarity on what we were doing. Yeah. Mm, so they saw your transformation and they felt like it's not so much of an obstacle for the business, but you going and coming back actually brings great benefit. Well, I can't speak for what they say, <laughs> and say but I mean, I, I do believe that, you know, it's important for us to rest and recharge. We're, we're not machines mm. and, you know, this is important and relevant and it's important for at least once a year, we go for a longer break. I long is relative to everyone. And it's something I do encourage in my team or my uh, direct team members. So yes, actually they do do that. But I think what's different about this is that you go alone. And I haven't actually spoken to them about being in noble silence. <laughs> because <laughs> one particular team member, she's incredibly talkative. <laughs> and I've often joked to her, like, I, I mean, I've thought to myself like, yeah, maybe you should go on meditation retreat because uh, you experience the opposite. So sometimes people ask me about this and I tell them that, you know, who are you when you strip everything away, where you, you can't even express anything verbally. And who is this person left behind? And I get very weird looks when I, when I say that to people. But I think for those of us that have gone on these similar retreats, I think we all can understand. There's two very, very powerful questions. Who are you when you strip everything away? And who is this person left behind? And do you think you are close to finding the answer for those two questions? Well, I think in another world, I will probably be a very happy monastic. But I also feel like I will be a very efficient monastic because I think there's a side of me that does want to get stuff done. And sometimes quite before, like, the greatest suffering is actually in the walls of a monastery. So close yet so far. But to me, yes, I, I think uh, I, I'm generally a very happy person. I, after day four or day five. <laughs> <laughs> the first four days, your mind takes it to settle down. The yeah, day one is yeah, for me, I think day one is the most peaceful because like, oh, finally I got a break. <laughs> and then the last day is usually the most frustrating for me because like it's a form of escape, right? So I think it's so important to be able to integrate that to the day-to-day -day life. And I, I wonder how do you do that? Because you run a school, a lot of people are under you. I think it's good that you have the 15 minute a day practice. How else do you integrate mindfulness into your your work or the way? Well, I don't do this. I mean, when I first met Shei Ming Tan, he introduced the concept of the one minute meditation. And I really wish I could tell you that A, I lead this in my team very often and B, that I do this very often myself. But both of these are lies. I don't do that very often. Okay. I, I, I have led, you can see grounding exercises that are secular at work and in these small groups that I'm part of. And I think personally, I believe that I have very secular beliefs in terms of religion. And I think even today, I would, I'm not entirely sure if I would call myself Buddhist. And there are also, there, there are very many forms of Buddhism. So I, I, I can't actually pinpoint, well, if I am Buddhist, what exactly I am. But I, when it comes down to what I would call secular practices, I mean, just breathing exercises, body scans, and you can say, call it positive psychology or whatever you want, just telling yourself that you're safe, that you have everything that you need and that you're loved. I think all these things are secular. So uh, I do do these things in public settings, 
in my own wedding, actually, I led a, I led a loving kindness meditation and it was my wife's idea. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And I think I wish I did it more and I've actually been told that I should. And I do feel like there's this side of me that I don't want to intrude on other people's religious beliefs. Mm. Or it's a bit of like an imposter syndrome of like, who are you <laughs> doing these things? Um, but yes, I, I do know that I should do this more. And that when a leader does this, it shows to everyone that look, I care about your well-being and that we want everyone to be in that space. So it's something which I think is important for me to role model. And I'm doing more and more of it every year. Yeah. But I do still feel very important. And perhaps it's because... Uh, what I do for a living influences directly the lives of young children that it might have a very strong impact to them their whole lives. I think the secular part of this is still very strong in me. I've been called a hypocrite about this because people have said like, look, if Christian schools have chapel and if you consider yourself Buddhist, then why do you feel awkward doing this? I think for me, maybe it's because I know I'm not Christian and I went to Methodist Junior College and I really didn't like being in chapel. And I couldn't get out of it. So perhaps that's why I feel very strongly about respecting people's boundaries. How do you integrate that to your work culture though? Because, I mean, people usually also would associate mindfulness, meditation with religion. And I think some is like, oh, you know, is, is this the back door uh, to Buddhism? And do you face any resistance when you're trying to, you know, ground people through all these practices at work? Just to add on, I think specifically also because I think you partner with Contentment Foundation to offer mindfulness, like formal programs. In this, that context also, were there any resistance there to add on the presence question? Yeah, uh, actually both of your questions uh, is my journey in implementing something like this in an organization. There are many mindfulness programs out there for schools, most of which are completely secular, which was important to me. And when I was exploring the implementation of this in schools, I began to actually realize what some people's boundaries are. I would say that more for most people, when they experience the practices themselves, and I always invite people like, look, if you feel that this intrudes upon your boundaries, stop, you can stand up, you can walk away. I wouldn't take offense at all. And it's your decision. But, but I always preface this very clearly. I give them a bit of a mini briefing about what I'm going to do. And my practices aren't very long. Uh, the maximum I would ever do anything at work is five minutes. And maybe I'm very sensitive hearing, but you know when people aren't really involved when you start hearing very long sighs? <laughs> I, I, you try to read the room while you're in it. I've had people come up to me saying they're not comfortable and I say, look, it's okay. You can step out. And for this particular person, what happened is uh, she spoke to her pastor and she did a lot of research online. And the answer that came back with her was, I am okay with a guided meditation to do with my body or to do with instructions that would make me feel happier and better. I'm not okay with sitting down and having a blank space because that's my relationship with God and I don't want you to be part of that. And I really appreciated her telling me that this is my boundary and I respected that. So yeah, we were able to cross that hurdle. And for our schools, for the Contentment Foundation, it's very clearly secular. Mindfulness is just the first pillar of four. Community is the second one. The third one is, I believe, self-actualization. And the fourth one is very, it gets increasingly complex. 
And I've always appreciated that because, yes, mindfulness is a very internal journey, but there's obviously a part to do with interpersonal relations, especially in the heart of loving kindness. I think the challenge is really living this and implementing this. There are plenty of people who meditate a lot of hours in a day, but then you know, they might not be very nice people or to be around. And then I would say it's a failure. And so I think it's important for us to be able to do the practices, but also be able to have a healthy culture within the organization. I don't do the Contentment Foundations program in every school. I do it for schools which I believe are open to this. In Singapore, I believe all schools doing it right now. And that's something that I hope to progressively roll out. That's very skillful because I feel like breath, you know, everyone has it. It's circular and Buddhism is not really a religion also, but that's my perception. So it's very skillful for you to open the conversation with people to step out and say, hey, I don't feel very comfortable with this. Can we switch it to something else? And also going back to the, the intent, why do we want to bring such activities or practices in the school is really to benefit people. So if they feel uncomfortable, then perhaps further away from a calm mind, they will get more agitated, maybe don't feel so good at work and can backfire. So thanks for sharing that piece. I'm wondering if you don't have this mindfulness practice, who do you think you will be today? I think anyone who's been in a senior position and anyone who's worked in a family business has thought about leaving. Uh, and, uh, you know, the family business is a joke that it's Hotel California, you can check in, you can't check out. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if I would be doing what I'm doing now. And I think that might have been uh, taken me away from my life. So who knows? We just don't know that. It's one of those unknown unknowns. I do think that I probably would have a more challenging relationship with my wife. And I do think that uh, I'm quite hard on myself to begin with. And I think I might have been even harder on myself. Yeah. And I think people can be hard on you also. And it's good that you do the loving kindness thing. I would like to ask this question to Cheryl also, because Cheryl also guides meditation at work in different contexts. Who will you be, Cheryl, if you don't have mindfulness practice? <laughs> it's a very interesting question, I think, because I started meditation and mindfulness on the wrong foot, actually. It started from a place of insecurity. So I was bullied and then it was kind of, I, I feel like I didn't have any work because being bullied, you're isolated, you're different from everyone else. So meditation, mindfulness was kind of an identity that I took on to protect myself. It's like, you know, I'm cool. I have something. This is my shoe. So for many years, I struggled with that until maybe like one, two years ago, I realized that it was a form of escapism and meditation is really not about that. It's about embracing the discomfort, embracing the unglam parts of yourself. And I think without mindfulness, I will probably be stuck in a very dark place, uh, not being able to become friends with myself. So just forever and longer hits with my inner critic. But with mindfulness now, I think I can put the inner critic aside and say, hey, thanks. Thanks for your concern. But you know, you're not exactly helping me out right now. So let's change the narrative a little bit. So I wouldn't want to imagine my life without mindfulness. I think it's kind of part of my DNA now, but not, not in the unhealthy way of it being a mask of protection, but rather just, a, I guess, a soft landing when life gets hard. Yeah, so 
Hope that answers the question. Yeah, I love that. And I, I can relate to both because I am very hard on myself. And I think to some extent, in the past, without meditation, I'm just so busy and occupied with life. And I thought that I'm living life purposefully, but I was just running away from my own thoughts. And when I finally was able to sit down, like, wow, you know, it's so amplified, it's so loud. I didn't know I had all this maybe insecurities, these worries, and it, it really took a while for me to be courageous enough to look inwards. And now, even though outwardly I might be doing the same thing, but it comes from a very different place. And it is also my wish that I can die peacefully with a calm mind. Recently I had a health scare and I thought I was going to die. And then it was quite interesting because that's where the push comes to shove. And I know, okay, my mindfulness practice is not as good as I thought it is because I still had a fear and anxiety. And also like the how fleeting life is because I went to A&E and then I was asking the doctor, how's my organs? And the moment the doctor said that, oh, your, your kidney is fine. Wow, I just went back to autopilot mode. And it's like, oh, I'll start planning my week, my month, when's my next appointment to reschedule it. <laughs> and when I look back in hindsight, it's quite funny because the mind plays trick and there's a lot of unconditioning that we have to do. So uh, yeah, mindfulness practice, I think it's definitely essential. It's not really a good to have, but a must have. And I've learned that if it is like we see it as an essential part of life, we would find time to meditate. Actually, I, I like to build on that because I, I've begun to explore this element. I experienced this myself where there's a criticism, especially in some schools you know, of Tibetan Buddhism, that like generic mindfulness makes people more compliant. And in a way, I kind of understand what they mean because I went to a particular workshop. I don't know how to describe this workshop, but it was effectively systems theory and actions. And uh, certain very provoking things occurred in the workshop where, yeah, so basically you could say that people were triggering each other's poop that was triggering everyone's poop. And they're like, yeah, there's a lot of poop all over. And my boundaries weren't very strong then. I almost feel like in a way, because of my mindfulness practice, I was able to let a lot in and to let a lot sit with me. And I began to realize that actually boundaries are incredibly important. And maybe it's because of what I do, or maybe it's because of the way I'm choosing to live my life. But I'm not a monastic that can care about every, that all degrees of suffering all around me all the time <laughs> and with equal attention. And that sometimes I realize that, look, uh, this is your poop within you. It is not my poop. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's actually, and that, you know, I know who I am. And I am not that. And I, I think it was actually quite an important realization of me. So you could argue that that maybe when you meditate a lot, and especially when you mix around the crowd of people who tend to meditate a lot, there's a lot of love for everyone around you. I mean, no pressure for like, you know, love for us and beings. <laughs> but then on the other side, it's just not really that possible. And you have to realize that if, if this is this person suffering, that person's suffering shouldn't become your suffering. Um, I mean, obviously we want to help, but it doesn't mean that this burden is compounded on me. So mm -hmm. it was a realization that I've had, and I feel like it's something that it wasn't easy for me to realize. It was actually my wife who pointed out to me, like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and then I, yeah, because I went to this course as a fight. I got a migraine for four days. Wow, it's really it intense. Yeah, it was really intense. It was cardiac, but I think I had that cost to thank for me. 
uh, to actually realize it. And yeah, just trying to process all of it. It's interesting you call it poop, I guess, because you're relying on we can't swear, so you tone it down. Because <laughs> <laughs> we have other podcast guests, they curse on our podcast, and you're fine with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess uh, there's PG and there's G. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you say Buddhists are compliant. So are you suggesting that we comply for the sake of complying and sometimes don't set boundaries, and that's where we might get our internal emotions stirred up or not? very beneficial so that's where mindfulness comes in to know okay when is the line to be drawn just so i interpret your sharing correctly actually i wasn't applying this to this as of what when you're taught generic mindfulness you're almost taught to deal with and sit with discomfort and to, to sit with all these thoughts that come and go and to just sit through it i mean a power hour is power hour right and uh, i think a lot of us realize that then yeah, you know, all these things, this too will pass. Uh, I mean, it's one of the, yeah, yeah. It's something that I think we all realize. And I feel like, you know, that's great, but it shouldn't actually build up. That's why you can call it stupid grit. You know, grit is good. Um, but at the same wisdom. time, yeah, yeah. Wisdom is very important. That's what we do all this to begin with. Yeah. Don't lose yourself while doing it. And I guess that's why mindfulness is always complemented with wisdom and loving kindness. And loving kindness always starts with ourselves, making sure that we're full, we're feeling good, feeling safe as well, and our boundaries and all. Before we can then take on other people's poop and, and help to reduce that. But if we are not taking care of ourselves, it's almost impossible to do that for others. Yeah, that's so true. And I think to some extent, you packing your bag and flying for a retreat is also setting boundary, right? It's a threshold and maximum amount of capacity that you can intake all these things that's happening and sometimes you know hitting the reset button is good and you come back stronger i feel this is particularly important as an advice to buddhist practitioners because in the past especially i would feel like i'm so lousy you know shouldn't i be more tolerant you know shouldn't i be kinder why am i angry and then i take it upon myself which is also not very good because that's also moving further away from lessening greed hatred and delusion <laughs> So thanks for that. I have a super curious question to you, Yishen, and this comes from my reflection, talking with a lot of Buddhist friends who hit an experience, sometimes profound deep states that is very unusual and you cannot find this kind of pleasure in the world. So as you meditate, do you feel that sometimes you would have a disconnect with the world in general, where you find yourself like one fit into the spiritual realm and one fit in the material world? And do you find at any point divide is getting a little bit bigger? If you get my question. <laughs> yeah, actually, I get your question. And I think anyone who's experienced altered states like this, the answer is obviously yes. I think in the framework that I understand what I've experienced is, I guess they call it the jhanas. The analogy I give people is you can use depth, ocean depth, as an analogy here. So I guess the conventional mainstream Theravada as an institution, Theravada Buddhism, they would describe as the jhanas, like maybe a 1,000 meter version. I've, I've, I've probably experienced maybe the 300 meter or the 500 meter version of that. And I've also experienced the 5 meter version of that. I personally think it's relative. And I, I think definitely when you experience the, 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 the deeper depth that I'm talking about, yes. For sure. It's something that it's totally unlike 
reality. I mean, it's a new reality. I don't know really what to call it. And I think for me, when I exit these states, the real world actually feels, I, I hear different. My emotions are different. And it's actually very strange because I almost feel a bit like a robot for a little bit of time because emotions just hit very differently. And of course, yeah, yeah. So at peace that everything is like, is, oh, okay, it's like this. And then you deal with it like this. And I think it can rub people off the wrong way because they assume that you're angry because you have no emotion in your body. Yeah. And for me, I can't sleep. I can't sleep for hours after this. And it's very unfortunate whenever I encounter this in a way because like, I tend to do it at night and then like, uh, then it just destroys my sleep cycle. But unfortunately, you can't really wash this away. So you try to work like a good Singaporean and I, I'd be up being incredibly productive. And after I finish all my work, then I sit there and then I, I used to play computer games previously. I'll play computer games and then I'll get all the highest scores possible. <laughs> so I play a first-person shooter. And then uh, in a, this like challenge move, and I'll get this high score. And then in my non-jhana state, I'll come back to it and be like, oh man, I can never get anywhere near that. <laughs> I mean, I've tried. I mean, there's no way you can ever get anywhere near that. And so, you know, when you discover this other sense of processing reality, there's also this learning that you have to go, you have to learn that, look, it's not the real world. And from what I understand, I think the first time I got there, I actually thought to myself, oh, this is what enlightenment feels like. It's all the time. But from what I understand, they don't feel that way either. Like their sense of reality is not what I've experienced. So I'm sorry, this is a great mystery that I still have, but I do feel like that, yes, this is another box of suffering to open up and to explore. Cheryl so is you... deep in thought. <laughs> How many meters is your thought? <laughs> Do you feel like it's something that you need to reconcile with? Because like, um, you know, just ran off in the middle of the night <laughs> to go and explore. After seeing age sickness and death, he couldn't unsee that. And, you know, he, he decided that hey, I need to go off and find the answers. But obviously we can't just do that. Or I guess, you know, general people wouldn't just throw everything away especially in your case family business three kids your wife and and all this stuff um so is it something where you just kind of accept that this is the state where you know it's struggle it's, it's where i would just have to be stay in it for a while and then answers will just pop out on its own or are you doing anything actively actually for me i i feel like i found my answer and so this life my purpose is to run this school group to make the biggest impact possible. It's very clear for me. And once it landed, I knew it. So my path is not enlightenment this life. Or, and you know, maybe never, <laughs> maybe never life. Mm -hmm. So I, I know that this is what I'm here to do. And whatever practices I, that I know that are important to me in, and I in a certain way, I accept. I guess you can plant the seeds of enlightenment <laughs> in whatever you do. That's actually very beautiful. And I think it also nicely wraps up the episode. We've covered quite a lot. I think when you first started, you also mentioned that you have this thing in you that you want to make the greatest impact. You've talked about how it's actually not so rosy, you know, like, oh yeah, mindfulness, put in work, then what, suddenly you become a saint. But it's a journey. Sometimes you, you don't react and respond so well, and that's also okay. <laughs> and However, you try to integrate a routine in your day-to-day, -day, I think that's very helpful. And being able to identify boundaries, I think that theme came out quite a lot, be it whether it's kind of 
introducing mindfulness practice to other people, you know, what their boundaries are and our own personal boundaries when it comes to our capacity to help, to tolerate poop and to tolerate our own poop as well. Yeah. I would like to ask if there's anything else that you'd like to share before we officially end the episode and Cheryl as well. No, I I was just laughing to myself because, you know, when I share that philosophy that I know that like the enlightenment is not my path this life, uh, I get some very interesting responses from Buddhists and then they go like, no, no, Yixian, oh, you must, you go ahead, bro. (laughs) It's okay. I mean, everyone's on their own journey, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think whatever way, shape or form, like, yeah, I know it's not my journey. Perhaps not this life. Maybe next life you have a different, you know, intent. Maybe uh, next retreat. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. True, life is an adventure. But yeah, we'll see. <laughs> All right. I would like to leave with one note. I just suddenly thought of it. Regarding mindfulness practice in day-to-day, because I think you're so busy, you have proven that it is possible to integrate in day-to-day life. And even if you can't do even the one-minute breath, I've learned this, I think it's called the Long Tomatoes method, whereby every door you walk past, you would just be aware of your breath. So you know how sometimes we enter a room without knowing that we enter a room (laughs) or like we shampoo our head twice, things like that. So I found that to be very helpful. I mean, we don't need extra time to be mindful, but just passing the door and that can be our signpost. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like it and benefited from it, please do share with a friend and give us a five-star review on Spotify. It would help us a lot. And till the next episode, may you stay happy and wise.